five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. My guests this week are Ian Fichtenbaum and Chris Carpenter from Bradford Space. Bradford has been around for a few years, and their systems, such as propulsion and attitude control, have covered quite a bit of space heritage already. But they also have an exciting new project. Let's hear about it in this episode. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast and we'll also put that link in the episode notes and lastly you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space hey everybody welcome back it's another episode today i'm thrilled to have bradford space on the podcast and not just one but two of them ian fichtenbaum the ceo and christian carpenter the head of production and advanced systems welcome guys thank you oh thank you thank you for having us so Ian, since you're the CEO, why don't I ask you if you could give a quick elevator pitch of about Bradford, please? Oh, certainly, and and thank you for having us uh, on. Uh, Bradford, in a nutshell, is a space infrastructure and mobility company uh, that is enabled by proprietary uh, propulsion. Uh, and avionics and attitude control technologies that we build in-house. We, uh, as a company, uh, have a few different heritages in terms of our history uh, because we were, uh, didn't start off as one company. It, it, it became one company after uh, a few acquisitions. The company today, uh, it's a multinational, we would say, powerhouse uh, in propulsion, mobility, and space infrastructure. Uh, we're located... Uh, in the U.S., uh, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Luxembourg, headquartered in the U.S., but operations on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and it's this geographic uh, distribution or heritage uh, serving customers all over the world, commercial and, and government, uh, and our plans for the future in space, uh, space mobility and infrastructure uh, is why I'm extraordinarily excited about Uh, our company, uh, as a CEO, you always have to be excited, but uh, we, loved, we love the things that we do, have done, we love the things that we, uh, we're doing, and we love what the future holds. Terrific. And I have to ask, so most, um, many space companies have very stereotypical names, as you know, something with Stella or something like that. So Bradford is a little bit different. Can you just give us the, the quick story behind the name? 
Well, I don't know if there's a a quick story. Uh, The story, I think, in a nutshell, so our Netherlands unit, our Netherlands operation, uh, that's actually a company that has existed since the mid-80s. It was a... it was entrepreneurial company uh, in the 80s, uh, doing uh, first nuclear, then things in the space. The story about that uh, is that the original founder uh, was looking for a place uh, to locate uh, their, their business, and they found uh, a factory, uh, an open factory, an empty factory in the, in the south of the Netherlands um, that had belonged to a uh, uh, of all things, a socks company, a textile company that uh, they they liked the name. Uh, they transformed it to Bradford Engineering, and that's how it was for a few decades after that. Uh, now it's still Bradford uh, en- Engineering, but uh, in, in the in the process of the last few years, it became something much bigger. Uh, we call we say Bradford Space uh, instead now than engineering. Uh, but Bradford Space, we, we the the name has has uh, has been adopted, and uh, through all the rest of the units uh, uh, of Bradford. Now, I do want to make one very interesting point, and I like pointing this out um, because if you go back farther to the origin of the name, the name uh, we, we don't know the details, but obviously there's a town in England. Uh, with the name of Bradford. Uh, if you if you look at where that comes from, you have to look into the origins of Middle English uh, and just break down the name. Um, broad is, means far or wide, uh, and forward means to cross. Uh, it was it was it, it's something of an interesting thing. Something uh, a wide crossing it has a little something to do with uh, space. And especially our focus now of deep space, it, it is appropriate. It makes sense. Yeah, it, a, it, it makes a certain sense. Back, back to the roots. Uh, yeah, it, you have to explain it a little bit, and uh, all things considered, uh, names shouldn't have to be explained. Um, but it's a name uh, that has a lot, a lot of good history behind it. I think it's a name that's going to have that has a great future ahead of it. Um, and there's some there's some nice gems in the in the in the in the name origin. It's, it's already quite a story. So what I basically, uh, as, as I can summarize it, it's socks to nuclear to to space and, and yes. deep space, which is well which is bri- bridges to socks to nuclear to space. Um, so there you go. It's a, in it's a roundabout what's, route. What's what's your background? Are you have you always been in the space industry? I've been um, mostly always in the space industry because most of my uh, career has been advising companies or investors in the space industry one way or another. I I came from engineering. I came from uh, operations research. Um, I spent almost uh, six years uh, with an investment advisory firm. Uh, So that was uh, advising mergers and acquisitions and and financing. That was uh, primarily for satellite and space companies. It's from that uh, that I got in the business also in in, bringing companies together, growing them, uh, that I I found myself in the position I am uh, today uh, where we've brought this uh, group together uh, to be one company uh, to build out the solar system. That that was a sort of a a bio uh, that brought it brings it back to the company. But 
The the too long didn't read version is engineering and, and finance bringing 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 me here. Understood. So let's turn to, to to Chris. Chris, what's what's your story and why did you decide to join Bradford? Yeah. So um, I've uh, always wanted to make a difference um, to do something that hadn't been done. Uh, when I was in college, um, I thought I wanted to go uh, fly jets in the military and uh, went into aerospace. And as I was studying, uh, I found that uh, UAVs were going to be a thing and pilots were going to uh, not be in the cockpit as much. Um, I didn't totally understand how slow the aerospace industry moves at the time. So I thought, okay, this is, you know, I'm not really going to have a chance. So uh, I ended up um, finding electric propulsion uh, in my studies and decided that I wanted to bring electric propulsion to, to the world. Um, there hadn't been much uh, done uh, at that time. So I got a job at uh, NASA Glenn Research Center uh, working on ion thrusters, uh, gridded ion engines primarily, mm -hmm. um, and also working on a space station. And then um, I was there for about five years. And the last thing I did uh, at, at NASA was uh, start the life test for the uh, next ion thruster, which became uh, the longest life test that's ever been done uh, for those uh, type of engines. Uh, then joined Aerojet Rocketdyne. Uh, and uh, was there mm -hmm. for 10 years uh, working on um, hull thrusters, um, NASA's Orion program, uh, advanced architectures for uh, space transportation. Uh, and um, uh, the last thing I did at Aerojet was uh, the uh, CubeSat propulsion system that was 3D printed. And it was the first time anybody had done that. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the company won um, the most innovative company in space for 2015 from a fast company. Uh, for uh, in part for that project, uh, and then uh, joined SpaceX um, after that to uh, develop the Starlink propulsion system, um, which is now flying on uh, about two thousand some odd yep. satellites. The number keeps changing, uh, and um, at that point, you know, it was sort of like, hey, this this happened. You know, uh, accomplished what I was there to do, um, and uh, I was looking for what's what's next. What do you do after this? And so Ian uh, called me up and said he wanted to do something in deep space. And I said, that's cool. I haven't really done that before. I, I, I think that's an area that needs uh, new technology and a push. Uh, and so I joined Bradford to help uh, push us out into deep space. That's a terrific story and, and, and really a great experience. So we want to talk mostly about Bradford today, but I just have to ask you, so Aerojet to SpaceX, it strikes me as sort of like culturally different organizations. Oh, just for sure. A couple, couple of minutes of sort of like high level, how, how they can compare some of, you know, some of the things that immediately come to mind. Yeah, that, absolutely. That so it's been, uh, it's been a great privilege to have worked at NASA, which was obviously governmental, uh, work at Aerojet that's kind of a hybrid between commercial and governmental, and then work at SpaceX where it's, um, you know, obviously they serve the government, but it's, it's highly commercial and highly, uh, you know, high speed, high energy kind of thing. Um, what I found is that, um, and I won't run into too much time on organizational uh, structures, but mm -hmm. um, there are pockets of innovation still within NASA. Um, NASA uh, continues pushing things forward, but there's there's these little pockets that are really what's driving everything. Uh, and I had the privilege of being a part of one of those teams when we worked on the next ion thruster. And then when I went to Aerojet, um, 
I, I found uh, teams that were, that were trying to innovate and there's a lot of pressure uh, to stick with heritage, not, not only from internal management uh, things, but also from their customers. Uh, and so in, in many ways they respond to their customer needs. And if your customer wants heritage, that's, that's what you're going to do. Uh, but there were pockets of innovation there and there were decisions made uh, by the management team to, to continue innovating. Um, and when I got to SpaceX, I just found more of that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, their leadership wants to innovate. So they make a choice. And that's what I like about being here at Bradford as well is that Ian made a decision that he wanted to push the company forward and innovate and that, uh, that I wanted to do more of that. Terrific. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. As I, as I said, back to Bradford, which is the main focus today. So I saw a line on your website, which basically said, it's, I think it's the most capable space company you've never heard of. We, we hope that changes, but more the second yes. part of that line well, than, than the first. And that's, I think, you know, hopefully today is going to help start changing the second part. If you want to change yeah, of, course. That, of course it is. Well, let's pick that apart. Let's start with the first half. So the most capable uh, space company, or very capable space company. So can you talk a little bit about, and you've mentioned a few things like avionics and propulsion, but can you talk a little bit more detail about the capabilities you have and you know the space heritage you have? So capabilities we have, uh, just broadly speaking, we have about uh, just about just over 80 staff uh, worldwide. Still the majority of our of our operations are in Europe. So a lot of that capability is Europe-centric. Uh, I'll get to the U.S. and Christian's work, of, of mm -hmm. course. Um, but uh, the European um, uh, infrastructure um, works on a lot of high-quality uh, components and subsystems, and, and and even and full propulsion systems. Uh, so, a lot of things. Uh, well, spacecraft depends on uh, depend on a lot of subsystems. Uh, but we build attitude control uh, systems, and that's sun sensors and reaction wheels. We build uh, propulsion subsystems, uh, starting uh, from pressure transducers and flow control systems up to full propulsion systems. And full propulsion systems are you know considerable things: the thrusters, tankage, feed systems. Uh, a, a lot, a lot of elements that go to, uh, to that, and it's very critical elements. So we do, we we do that uh, in our facilities. Uh, we have a, a great capability uh, to build the uh, build those. Um, but beyond the just the engineering and the build, uh, what I love about our company is that we have a production mindset. Um, and that is rare in the space industry. Uh, there's a lot of companies that do R&D. Uh, there's a lot of companies that do custom one-offs. And we do both. We do do those things. Mm -hmm. But there's not as many companies that do production right. And that's where uh, Christian uh, coming to us uh, was a big deal. And what we thought we thought was a great match. Because we, we do ha did have, we do have, have had uh, the mindset of production uh, and quality production, where we have had um, you know standardized product that we build in the quantities of dozens and in some case hundreds. Mm -hmm. um, that's quote unquote 
high volume for the space industry historically. Mm-hmm. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't, by the way, consider that high volume uh, in the context of the world. Um, but we have, uh, we have uh, that um, basic capability, and it includes also building thrusters. It includes test fire facilities. It has uh, ability to 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 make a propellant uh, for our systems. Uh, we also have um, a growing capability uh, in avionics. So in in the spacecraft control systems and other elements that will be uh, included in people's vehicles, uh, including uh, we hope our vehicles. Uh, in the U.S., um, of course, Christian and his team uh, are doing everything, uh, doing things uh, to to advance um, uh, our systems on a vehicle level. Uh, he, he's tackling um, he's tackling uh, problems in in power, in computing, uh, in robotics, um, uh, including and on. Uh, you know, you know, system uh, design, uh, vehicle design. Uh, so we think if you have good um, or great um, proprietary technology, we think if you have an infrastructure, we think if you have a great team, um, we think if you have good customers, and importantly, if you have a designed for manufacture and manufacture mindset, you can do great things. Um, so when you put, put, combine all these things uh, and it comes together in, you know, in the scheme of things, we're still a smallish company. Um, we're, we're not a few people in a, uh, in a garage, but we're also not, um, you, know, you know, the big aerospace companies of the world. Uh, we think if you put all those things together, uh, you have uh, one of the most capable companies um, that I think if we're after this podcast, it won't be as applicable anymore because more people will heard of us. Um, but uh, I think we're we're, 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 we're great capability and growing capability. You mentioned the sort of the, the, the production side of things and sort of, um, you know, going from a traditionally very low uh, volume number in production to now relatively high volume numbers. And I totally agree with you that we're like, we're nowhere near what's called mass manufacturing in other industry segments, right? That's something I want to ask you about anyway. And um, because it's, it's interesting that that shift is now starting to happen in the space industry. You would probably agree it's not necessarily trivial. Um, I think Elon ha- is on the books. Um, he has once tweeted that sort of something like building one prototype is really easy and mass manufacturing is really hard. And I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how that's happening um, at, at Bradford and how you guys are thinking about it. And I guess that's also where Christian's specific expertise comes in because I assume that the Starlink production line is the highest volume sort of space-related production line in the world, probably going at almost 200 a clip in, per month or something like that. How are you thinking about this? How are you thinking about implementing it at um, at Bradford? What are, what are the challenges? Um, I'll take that one. So when I was talking with Ian bef- uh, coming into this role, Uh, One of the things I mentioned to him was that building one satellite has been the norm for a while. People, People build one flavor, you know, one unit or maybe a couple units, and they don't design a production system to be able to make more of them. And, and when they do that, they end up paying 
over and over and over again for the same capabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you design um, your satellite to be manufacturable, even if you just make one or two, you're, you end up paying that off very quickly. Um, at least that's the theory here. So we're looking at how to design a satellite to be manufacturable. Um, and this is very different than uh, what SpaceX is doing because of the propellant we use and the missions we're trying to go after. But uh, there are a lot of general lessons from manufacturing that, that apply here. You, you really have to design a manufacturing system from, from the ground up. You have to design uh, your product to be manufacturable. Uh, you have to have IT infrastructure that supports uh, low labor, low overhead of, of running the production system. Uh, a lot of companies are spending enormous amounts of labor uh, just tracking the information. And, um, you know, how do you address that? When you're looking at building things at these scales, it's quite challenging because you cannot justify the machinery that you could justify for very high volume manufacturing, but you also can't burden yourself with all of the labor uh, associated with a one-off build. So mm -hmm. you have to find a way to bridge that gap between, you know, high volume and a single unit type manufacturing. And that's extremely challenging. Uh, and so that's the kind of thing that we're trying to address here. Mm -hmm. And then what do you think? Does that not mean also that at least in the current state of the space industry, you basically have to do what SpaceX has done and what it seems like you guys are also doing that you have to be relatively vertically integrated because, I mean, you can be optimizing your own production line as much as you want. But if the rest of the supply chain is such that, you know, I think at um, the satellite conference last week, one of the panelists said, um, he was quoting an example, like he ordered a reaction wheel and he had to wait for like nine months to get the reaction wheel. Right. So if that's the case, if that's the case right then, then obviously that, that doesn't work, right? Yeah, nine, nine months is probably a pretty decent uh, delivery <laughs> uh, schedule, actually, in this in, in the aerospace. Um, a lot of things are 18 or 24 months. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. What happens is, uh, and where the innovation occurs, is knowing that you're dealing with these sort of lead times, um, you have to get creative and find ways around that problem. So um, even back at NASA, I ran into this where... We had to get material, and um, I, I had one scenario where we needed a, a large amount of material within 48 hours, and the procurement cycle, just placing the order, was usually more than 48 hours. Um, and so I had to get very creative with how do we how do we procure this thing, get it here, uh, and we we got it. You know, we had, within 48 hours we had what we needed. Um, but you can't you can't use the normal systems. You have to get creative about it. So um, the, you know, the vertical integration needs to be done at the right level. There's a lot of things that you don't need vertical integration for. Um, if you can, the way I look at it is if you can uh, explain your requirements simply, if someone else has an existing process capability to make something for you, uh, then it's a good idea to leverage that. The place where I look at vertical integration is when you have something that's very complicated to communicate or where you have uh, a supply chain with a past history of delivering late or delivering poor quality. Mm -hmm. uh, those are areas where you may want to insource. I think that may be a little bit different than how people view uh, the concept of, of going full vertical, uh, but that's really where it makes sense to me um, is, is, is in those scenarios. That makes sense. 
And and last question on the sort of the, the 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 production process. We've been basically talking at least implicitly only about the hardware side. I guess there's a whole software side to spacecraft as well. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, your your hardware, software, um, your electrical, all of that needs to mesh really well. Um, the way that I look at it is to try to modularize way the parts interact with the factory. So everything that you make has an environmental interface, a mechanical, an electrical, and a human interface. Um, and the human interface may be fairly minimal, but it's, you know, how is the human interacting with the data in many cases? Mm -hmm. uh, and so you need to break those up in a way that they don't interrupt each other um, and that they play harmoniously with each other. Uh, and um, that that is something that, is a technique developed over time. Um, in a lot of cases, there's some trial and error with that. Uh, but I try to keep those interfaces very separate from each other. So uh, whereas a lot of people that I've seen in the past will integrate those things, and then it makes it very hard for them to be flexible when a design changes. So as an example, if you have, let's say, a hot fire test chamber, and you build into that chamber all the electricals for a given rocket engine, uh, and then your rocket engine changes, you now have to mm. do a lot of tear up of that uh, test facility uh, to be able to accommodate that new uh, rocket that's coming in. Um, whereas if you keep those things modular, you can basically roll up a test rack that's specific for whatever rocket engine you're firing that day. Uh, and if your electrical interfaces are very simple, it's pretty quick to make the changes. Um, and I've been able to demonstrate that concept time and time again. Uh, but I've seen a lot of people that integrate things in a way that are very challenging to make changes. So keeping those interfaces flexible and modular is, uh, is really key to making all those things work together. And that includes data and mechanical as well. Understood. Cool. I want to spend a few minutes talking, uh, coming back to you, Ian, about overall strategy, because you have this interesting history that you're an, like you mentioned, you're an amalgamation of, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, three different companies yes. who have many different, uh, very you know, high space heritage proven products, um, different types of products, uh, as you mentioned, avionics, uh, propulsion and, and so forth. How does it all fit together? How are you guys thinking about like, you know, how the pieces fit together and how you sort of extract long term? value from that? Well, the commonality is starts with the propulsion and mobility. You know, this is our largest area of, of capability, knowledge base of technology. Uh, and this is from where we're growing. Um, and for the, the next phase of space development, even the current uh, phase, but the next phase of the development is the space industry. So much of the value is going to come out of Uh, the propulsion and mobility, because so much of what we're going to be doing is either going out beyond Earth orbit or doing more things in or orbit, whether it's uh, rapid rephasing or satellite servicing um, or uh, removal activities. Um, all the all these areas, where, uh, propulsion is going to take on a greater role. Um, uh, Than it has in the past. Or in the past, it's been station keeping and and placing to orbit, all, all very important things. But um, as as we go go out, there's going to be more uh, value in propulsion. So in our company, uh, we we have uh, some strengths. We have hyper a high performance green monopropellant, 
that is the basis for a lot of our highest performance uh, propulsion systems. We also have the water electrothermal, uh, the, the comet uh, propulsion, and that is also on a few couple dozen uh, satellites. Um, so, so is the green monoprop. Uh, we also have experience uh, with electric propulsion. Obviously, Christian with enormous amount mm -hmm. of experience electric propulsion. But we also have uh, in Europe uh, cold gas um, um, by propellant. Uh, we believe if you master a set, a suite of propulsion technologies, uh, you can master mobility in space, and you can be a force in the coming. Uh, space industry. Uh, so we're already um, we're already good uh, a good way along the way. Um, there's we, we already have part of that suite. Uh, we we're already uh, planning out how we have the rest of that suite of propulsion technologies. Um, and if we bring them together in a an affordable, highly integrable, multi-mode space platform uh, that we can produce at quantity, uh, we feel we can be an integral part of the infrastructure of what's next. What are the spacecraft that goes out, outwards? What are the spacecraft that does things in space? That's where we're get, we get very excited uh, because we have the common elements. It can't just be propulsion, but if you have all those mm -hmm. elements of propulsion, then you can build out the next things. You can mm -hmm. build out the platforms, uh, and then that can flow into the networks. That is that is the infrastructure. That is the vision that we, we start off with. Have the full suite of the best technologies propulsion and build and build and build on top of that, uh, but build it with design for manufacture and production and low cost and utility to the customer in mind. I don't know if I went off track in, in the question. No, not, if not, I missed not, anything, not tell, tell me. It actually, it actually makes sense. It sort of like explains, you know, how the different pieces fit together. And let's continue that and explore it a little bit more in detail. What exactly sort of like this next generation, uh, you know, spacecraft um, could look like to the extent you can talk about it. I just want to sort of ask one follow-up question. Sort of, uh, you've been talking a lot about sort of, you know, efficient. Uh, um, I forget the exact words you use, but basically efficient space transportation and also like low cost and everything. I mean, since basically all three of us are quantitative people, you and I, finance people, and Christian, an engineer, is there sort of any metric you guys use? Is it I don't know, it could be like dollars per delta v or something like that, or how how do you look at that? That's part of it. Um, we. People are looking for unit costs, so they're they're looking for an entry point uh, that they can afford. But they mm -hmm. they're also looking for value. Uh, so if we provide uh, the same value that would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars spacecraft, now that's a government market. We have to be mm -hmm. careful about that. A lot of people have made that argument as well. Um, but uh, it's not. It's you usually don't make that argument in a one for one. It, it, the argument is usually you can get. X more capability. You can you can send a fleet. You can have a whole collection of space telescopes. You can have a network capability. You can have a cluster capability. Uh, so that's how those discussions happen 
especially in the government uh, uh, level, uh, where they they see it on on a, on a capability uh, and some part an industrial level. Uh, for newer applications, we we again cost of entry is important. Cost of being able to integrate onto our platform, availability is also mm. a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Availability is driving so much. Uh, of the industry right now, we see it uh, on a on a component supply. We see it on a vehicle uh, level. People want things now, uh, and that often doesn't comport uh, with uh, needing to wait eighteen months for your reaction wheel. Uh, mm-hmm. So part of our plans is to try to solve that. And then this this sort of new mode of uh, space, this this new vehicle you're talking about. If I heard it correctly, it basically would be something like you know I was going to say an OTV, an orbital transfer vehicle. Though I guess you know once you have all this propulsion, it doesn't necessarily need to be um, confined to the orbits. It could could go to the moon or other places as well. But is that the type of thing you have in mind, like an in space transportation um, spacecraft? Effectively, so um, it can do transport. What it also really can do is transport your function afar or around, you know, from orbit to orbit or mm-hmm. mobility. I mean, it is, it's always orbit to orbit, but it's, is it, is it trans, uh, transiting to some different orbital domain or is it maneuvering around in that uh, orbital domain? And this is about both. Now there's an additional element to what we're trying to build uh, because we're building this initially uh, with our green monopropellant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's chemical. Uh, mm-hmm. And because it's chemical, it's high thrust. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's high thrust, it's fast. And speed uh, is important for a lot of applications. Mm-hmm. It's important for rapid reaction. It's important for moving through uh, the radiation belts uh, quickly. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of value to have speed. It's a trade. It goes back and forth. Uh, there are a number of different uh, applications where speed is not so important. You want payload capacity instead. You want to be able to get there. Uh, so the, you know, it, it, it's not going to be all about one particular uh, propellant. We are starting with the green monoprop. That's the basis of our, you know, our vehicle, which we call Square Rocket, uh, SR Square Rocket, um, but it, we hope it's going to be a, a whole line of uh, vehicles that do mobility. So, so once you have a vehicle like that, like you said, with you know chemical propulsion, which has you know a lot of thrust. I mean, there's actually a range of obviously imaginable use cases um, where the thrust can, comes in and the capability of moving relatively rapidly between orbits or even to the moon. Right? Um, I mean, you 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 could. Um, do things like uh, debris removal if you wanted. You could obviously do the last-minute delivery of um, uh, of other people's spacecraft. I guess you could even do sort of like really specific tasking, like reconnaissance missions, things like that. Yeah. How are you guys thinking about the market? And is there any sort of use case you you guys are more excited about than others? Well, and I, I would I would even say. Uh, not only are we going for fast, we're also going for far because we're looking at well, not only at high thrust, but high delta V at the same time, uh, which is it overlaps some of the activities that doing in nuclear. Obviously, nuclear has a lot of capabilities, but here, here we're t- talking about chemical, uh, which... Uh, overlaps a lot of those capabilities uh, without some of the you know the known downsides of of nuclear. Uh, 
yes, um, uh, we, we, we see all, the, all, all these uh, possibilities, uh, debris removal, you know, network deployment, uh, rap, uh, rapid reaction, high resolution imaging. You know, when you go cl- very close to the earth uh, or very low orbits, you have drag uh, and that's where mm-hmm. propulsion becomes very important. So VLEO, very low, uh, very low earth orbit. The, you know, it's a, a very interesting area for these uh, vehicles. Uh, but also going to the moon, uh, you know, it's uh, it's not just the getting to the moon, which does require a lot of delta v's. Uh, you can you can be on a t- uh, translunar injection launch, so you can get there. But a lot of the orbits um, around the moon, near the moon, require a lot of delta v. Uh, they require a lot of station keeping because it's it's you know, a lot of orbit a lot of orbits there are unstable. Uh, so the mm-hmm. more delta v you you have, the more you are able to conduct operations, or more lifetime you have. Uh, of course, on the far uh, argument, uh, going out to Mars, going out eventually uh, to asteroids, um, you know, the, you know the, the, there there are certain limits, um, you know, for the uh, if you're limited to certain sizes. But as we grow the vehicle. Um, then we grow the capabilities, all those things are, are are in reach. And some of the use cases we've mentioned, like, for example, the active debris removal, or another one I didn't mention before I just thought of is, I guess you could also take um, spacecraft to and from refueling depots, right? Which, of course, some other space startups uh, are working on. They require additional capabilities that we haven't specifically talked about, and uh, I don't know whether you have them in-house, which is stuff like rendezvous proximity ops, um, Docking, robotics, even is that something you guys are looking to do? Are you looking to do it in house? You're working with partners. I, I think our answer is both. Uh, we're 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 looking at partners. We're looking at what we're doing in house. I think uh, robotics and proximity op- operations. It's it's a rich topic, and we're only very barely beginning uh, this topic in in the, in, in the space world. Uh, I mean, you have you know, systems that do this, uh, but you imagine a, a, an ecosystem, you imagine a, 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 you know, a space economy where people are going to space stations, people are servicing spacecraft, uh, p- people are moving back and forth. Um, there's a lot, uh, to, to work to be done. It's a, it's a very rich area. Um, and, uh, we have some things uh, we've identified uh, as um, I- increasing capability and lowering cost. Uh, in a few cases, immensely. Uh, I don't think we're ready to to talk about any of these things publicly. Um, but uh, this, there's there's going to be no shortage of innovation in this area. And what is the um, the status of this project? When um, when do you expect this to fly for the first time? Well, uh, Christian has a, a um, you know, t- takes a lot of his experience. Of course, we take our experience. Um, we're 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 doing our development for qualification within two years. Um, effectively, that means a flight within three years. It, uh, it you know, we we've we've done a lot of work. Uh, what's what's really great about our work on the vehicle level is that our propulsion, our core propulsion, is in space already. We produce it. Uh, we it, it's flying on 25 spacecraft today in orbit, and and so we're not uh, starting off with a technology uh, that you have to test uh, uh, first and fly uh, first. It's something we already make. Uh, it's already flying, and we we have to scale it up. 
Uh, we have to integrate it on a vehicle level. That's the that's that's our challenges right now. We have to make it a reliable vehicle. We have to design for manufacturing and production. Uh, those are the things um, that are the challenge challenges. If you wanted to put together just a vehicle, uh, we could probably put something together within a, a year, but that wouldn't get you a service and that wouldn't get you um, uh, something that's economically interesting either for us or for our customers. That's that's the power uh, to get something that serves logistics in space, serves all the applications for mobility in space, and do it affordably and do it effectively. Um, that's uh, that's what we're really excited about here. So thinking about this sort of going forward, so like if all goes well, you know, in 2024, you have a first flight. Um, but of course, it's not enough to have you know, one first flight, especially what you're trying to do here again is going towards um, relatively more mass manufacturing because, of course, you're only going to get those economies of scale if you actually really end up mass manufacturing, right? I mean, you can have the best designed production line in the world, but then if you don't actually sort of use it at its high capacity, then you, you, you won't get the economic benefit. So, uh, which, which means you need to actually produce and deliver a lot of these spacecraft, which kind of goes back to use cases and and have, you know, being comfortable that you can deploy a lot of these spacecraft. I mean, it's the same, of course, in SpaceX. SpaceX sort of, they, they basically almost cheated, right? Because they invented their own use case for Starlink. And that gave them a reason to, to produce thousands of satellites, which gave them, gave them a reason to you know, launch a Falcon 9 uh, almost every week by now. But sort of how would that equivalently look for, for you guys? To get to those numbers, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. I, I it's um so let let me explain it differently. I think people have sort of misunderstood a little bit about the value proposition of these things. So if um if you're going to try to deliver internet to the world, you want to minimize your capital expense for everything that you can, obviously, just like any other business. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as a result of that, you want to make things cheaply. And if you can't find anyone to make it cheaply, then then you need to go do it yourself. It turns out that for satellites, uh, the you don't the the concept of launching lots and lots of satellites to get the price point down um, is not as powerful as people expect it to be. Uh, if I go design a spacecraft that's very expensive and I make a thousand of them, they're still going to be expensive. So you have to start with building a spacecraft that's designed to be low cost. Uh, and that's what we're doing here at Bradford. So we, we do not have a requirement to launch lots and lots of these satellites to make them cheap. They're going to be designed to be cheap, even in mm -hmm. very low quantities. Um, and I, I predict that what you're going to see in the, the satellite market is you're going to see a lot of companies that believe they can solve the cost problem simply by building lots of vehicles. Uh, and I would argue that is a way to lose a lot of money very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, what you actually need to do is design the satellites to be cheap in low quantities and then scale that up. And that's what we're doing. So this satellite is, um, is an architecture that is designed to be low cost. It's designed to be flexible to change. Uh, and that is going to result in low uh, production costs, regardless of scale. Uh, certainly, we would like to make more of these. Um, the uh, the initial you know capability is not going to be anywhere near 
um, you know, what Starlink is doing as far as, uh, sure, because, sure. you know, because the market won't justify that. Uh, so what you want to do is um, on a factory level is build a factory that can make uh, a small number of units very cheaply and then be able to scale that capacity up um, without massive capital expense. Uh, and uh, that is a very hard problem to solve. And especially for what we're doing because uh, of going out into deep space, um, it's extremely challenging because we also have to have uh, the ability to survive, you know, some duration in, in deep space environments that are quite harsh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to low Earth orbit. Yeah, th- this is um, is a very subtle discussion here because many people think factory means high volume or you or you do volume for volume's sake. The factory is linked to our ability to to build the craft of the needed design, where the software. Uh, links with the elements of the spacecraft that come together that doesn't exist in a in a one-off custom environment. And it may not even necessarily exist in a high volume circumstance, although I would assume somebody builds up a factory of that in mind. Uh, but but it's it it, it it is a place or a set of facilities uh, from which you could build this at a reasonable cost, even at relatively low volumes with the flexibility of going higher. I'm just, I'm repeating uh, some of what Christian is mm-hmm. saying, but it's mm-hmm. a very, it's a very subtle a way of thinking about this. Okay. Understood. Let me ask you uh, one last sort of, uh, I guess, strategic question, Ian. So in the past, you've been, if I understood correctly, basically component suppliers, right? For example, of propulsion systems or avionics systems. Now you're going to have an entire spacecraft. Of, of course, there's two options, right, which are not mutually exclusive. You could sell that entire system to other people to operate, or you could operate it yourself, right? It's sort of the old aviation comparison. Well, are you an aircraft manufacturer and or, or are you an airline? Which I think in, in the space industry hasn't been answered uh, that much yet. But how are you guys thinking about that? I would say there's a lot of good operators out there who are um, skilled at operating the end network or accessing the end users, whether it's telecom networks or imaging uh, systems or uh, space service providers. I think in the very large uh, uh, set of cases, probably the best thing for us is to be working with uh, those operators. Um, it's uh, you know it's 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 a big enough challenge to get uh, this man- the manufacturer right uh, to then also have you know a, a go to market channel or a sales channel that goes to a comms uh, uh, you know, a, a comms market or an imaging market or a, any kind of uh, uh, any other market is also going to be that much more challenging. So I think to, to today what we want to do is partner with a lot of operators out there. Now that isn't to say if um, and there are uh, probably uh, some use cases which are new and unique uh, where we will have to be the operator almost by necessity because it it, it will develop organically out of what we're building. Uh, we're girding ourselves the possibility that will happen. But I think our first our first preference is to work uh, with operators. Uh, if any of those operators are listening, of course, uh, we're, we're all open to reach out or open to discussions. I think that, that, that that's, that's our default case. In, in addition to that, I think it's a very 
interesting problem that I haven't seen anyone solve yet, which is the ability to have a satellite that's flexible enough to support multiple different kinds of payloads uh, for different kinds of customers. And so I'd be very excited if uh, this vehicle ultimately does solve that challenge um, and allows multiple operators to run off a uh, common, um, not a common bus necessarily, but uh, from a common platform, mm -hmm. common architecture. Um, and so I'm trying to design this factory to be able to build our satellite as well as other types of satellites. So if someone comes in and says, hey, I, I need to build, you know, six or a dozen or more satellites. Can you do that? Uh, I'm very interested to see if we can make a factory that is flexible to which satellite we're building um, and uh, and also be able to have this core offering of a satellite that can support multiple customers. So in that regard, um, you know, we'd love to see operators and people with, um, you know, constellations, small or large, uh, come in and work with us to develop those. Terrific. Yeah. So, so Ian, let me ask you to sort of um, maybe tie it all together and um, summarize sort of what, what's your vision for the company sort of five to 10 years out? Where, what would you like it to look like ideally if all goes well? Well, I'd like, I'd like us to be building these vehicles. Uh, I'd like us to have the, the full suite of uh, propulsion, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I'd like us to be building out the infrastructure of the next step of space development. You know, some of it is in Earth orbit, and I think uh, a lot of it is going to be beyond Earth orbit. Some people talk about cislunar. I, that's going to need mm -hmm. a, a whole infrastructure. Uh, but as we go out to Mars, um, and this to me, if, if Elon and SpaceX are going to Mars, there's a lot of infrastructure that's going to uh, be needed and it's going to need this high mobility. Uh, so if we can play in that, if we can be the critical uh, provider of navigation or communications, you know, surveillance, reconnaissance, um, or just um, throughout the solar system, uh, that's a pretty impressive vision, something to be excited about. I think as we go out and, and you think about if you're able to do that, then a lot of the talk about asteroids, space resources start becoming, they seem more doable. They seem more real uh, real as you go, uh, go, go there. Um, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of markets all across the board. There's a lot of things to do. Um, so we're, we're excited about everything from very close to the Earth um, out to at least Mars. Um, and uh, people are going to need the building blocks, and I, I, I'm hoping we're the we're the building blocks. And it's, a, and it's funny you mentioned asteroid. That's because, of course, you guys, one of the companies you bought was Deep Space Industries. So again, yes. it's sort of going going back to the roots. But going going back to the roots. I mean, it's they realized that if you want to go do it, you have to get there. Um, and a, a lot of their activity was what's the craft, uh, what, what's the spacecraft that gets gets you there. And when we when we took over, we we said, well, this uh, and and when we took over, it, we we were able to pair it with uh, technology we had, propulsion technology we had, um, and that's 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 one area where you know is that word synergy. We saw there was a, a value between the the, the marriage of our techno uh, our propulsion technology uh, with the the idea of high mobility, you know, deep space spacecraft. Um, so there are a lot more uses uh, for these kind of things than just going out to the asteroids, as we as real realized. But once you do those things, you can go out to the asteroids. So we, we, you're right; it's it's 
Full circle. Yeah. So, so speaking of asteroids, that's a very nice segue um, as, as we're winding down your last couple of questions. So first question to, and, and the last questions are always for both of you. First question is sort of, besides what you're internally doing at Bradford, um, just one sentence really rapidly. What are you most excited about that may happen in space in the next few years? I think LEO space stations are going to be huge. Uh, this mm. is my opinion. Um, yeah. Uh, well, obviously, I have to say Starship. Uh, but then <laughs> oh, yeah. after, after Starship, I, I agree with Ian, I, I, and I've told him multiple times, I think we're going to see a state change in LEO operations where we effectively extend the yacht market into space and extend oh, yeah. the cruise line market into space. And I think that's going to happen a lot faster than people realize. Yeah, fully 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 agreed this, this is an area we, 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 it it's it also it connects to our mobility uh thesis mm. um there's there's more infrastructure that you need for it because it involves people um yes but it we're 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 watching it very closely and i think that's going to be uh, very very exciting i think and uh, yeah and i would just add to that that the these vehicle we're developing right now is an architecture and the factory we're developing is an architecture and that architecture is scalable up or down uh in physical size from what we're doing today so mm -hmm. as those markets emerge we we will be very excited to see that and uh ready to respond good and then from uh, moving on from space stations and starship it's an easy second to my traditional last question which is about science fiction Again, to both of you, really quickly, um, do you like science fiction and your your favorite science fiction uh, movie, book, TV series, whatever? Um, well, I grew up with Star Trek and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm -hmm. so I, I have I I grew up in that milieu. I would say the the one science fiction that I've been, I've I've gotten into lately is that this is a show uh, for all mankind uh, mm -hmm. that I uh, it's an uh, alternate history I find fascinating um, because it's it, it's kind of close to home about uh, what space development could look like uh, with uh, you know a, a, a little little extra jolt uh, that I think yeah. we're getting now anyways that's certainly true Christian Firefly excellent oh very traditional choice very good one uh, well, on that note guys thank you so much for coming on best of luck with uh, development of the, the new vehicle at uh, Bradford and you know maybe we'll do this again in a couple of years and see how far you guys have come thank you yeah yeah give us a ring and that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the space business podcast once more if you enjoyed this please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform such as apple or spotify you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.